As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Stephanie Wiseman, Artistic Director and Founder of The Marsh and now Marsh Stream. And welcome so much for joining me and all of us tonight on Stephanie's Marsh Stream. Um, you know, it's quite a terrible time and we are all trying, or many of us are trying to stand in solidarity for what is going on right now. At the Marsh, we're trying to uh, make sure that we are standing in solidarity. And so I'm so grateful that Brian Copeland on short notice is able to join us tonight. And I also wanted to let you know that on Saturday night, um, we have Wayne Harris and Ron Jones doing a piece in the moment, which is about voter rights and issues really relevant to today. And we also have, we'll have a community town hall after with the performers, myself and special guest Don Reed. So we are uh, looking forward to that as well. You know, at these times, you know, for me, how do we find the words to express what's going on and what, what is happening? And at times it is really, really hard. And, but one of the ways that it can be done is through art. And my guest tonight, Brian Copeland, has done an amazing, an amazing job of doing and giving us the emotion and the words through the art he has made over the past decade, more than a decade now. Um, so um, Brian, of course, also is a TV star, a host of news and radio and a stand-up comic and an amazing, amazing person. But for us tonight, what, the way I know him best is as a performer. So. Let's give a great big hand to Brian Copeland and let's welcome him to the Marsh Stream. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I mean, you know, anytime you need me, all you gotta do is call. I'm, I'm always happy to do something for the Marsh and especially 
in the times that you're talking about because it's it's you know we're talking about times unseen you know we got the worst pandemic in a hundred years we've got the biggest economic collapse since 1929 and the worst race riots since 1968 all at the same time and people's spirits are starting to break people's spirits are starting to break you know and that's one of the reasons i decided to do um an excerpt from the piece that i'm going to do tonight the waiting period yeah so before we get to that let's talk a little bit you know the first show you did at the marsh uh was not a genuine black man and right. For those of you who don't know, it is the longest running solo show in Bay Area history, perhaps the history of the world. And uh, um, talk a little bit about how that all came to be. How, why did you do that show? I mean, it is so relevant for today. I mean, it's like a... Uh... Well, it's interesting how that show came about. It was, I, I always call it my happy accident. You know, um, because of that happy accident that I was able to meet you and David Ford, and you both become such important parts of my my life and career. Uh, and that is, I wanted to do a one man show for years, but I had no idea exactly how to do it, what I wanted to write about. So um, I had at the time I had a show on KGO Radio, and I had the great Carl Weiner on as a guest. And I told Carl that I wanted to write a piece that I didn't know what to write about, and he said. Find the piece of ground that you alone stand on, that nobody else in the world does, and write from there. Then, a couple weeks later, I get this anonymous letter saying, as an African-American, I'm disgusted when I hear your voice because you are not a genuine black man. And I thought, bingo, that's it. That's my piece of ground. Because for some reason, I get that nonsense from, I've gotten that nonsense from, uh, from probably teenage years on. Oh, you're not really black. Oh, you're black, but you're not really black. Oh, you're an Oreo. Oh, you're an insect. You're really white on the inside. And I thought about why is it culturally that somebody thinks they can make that determination about me when they don't know me and know really what's, what goes on inside of, inside of me. So I would walk my kids to school in the morning, and I'd, I'd sit at this little cafe by my house called Sabino's, and I wrote down every story I could think about about what it was like to grow up in San Leandro, California, from the age of eight in 1972, when we first moved here, uh, and it was 99% white. It was 99% white was the demographic, and militantly so. And because I figured the reason why I get that grief from people is because of the fact that I spent my formative years as the only black face in the room. I was the one who was different. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna write from that perspective. I'm gonna write a show about what it's like to be the only one. Because at some point in your life, you'll find out you'll, you'll be in a situation where you're the only man, the only woman, the only Jew, the only Christian, the only Muslim. And how do you navigate those waters when you're the one who is different? So I dropped my kids and then I'd sit and I'd write every story I could think of. And I filled about like a dozen of these marble composition notebooks and stories. Some were funny, some were heartbreaking. I was amazed at how many things I had forgotten deliberately because they were so painful. So I thought, well, I got enough raw material. Let me go to the San Leandro Library and find out what was going on in town at the time uh, and uh, just to kind of give me a, a backdrop, some kind of context for this stuff. So I go to the library and I tell the librarian, Cindy Simmons, who's a head librarian who's since written a book on San Leandro, and she goes, I got something for you to see. And she pulls out this, she goes to the file cabinet, pulls out this big yellowing stack of papers. And what it was was a term paper 
done for what was then Cal State Hayward in 1967 by a San Leandro resident by the name of Don Magnifico called How San Leandro's Ten Homeowners Associations Keep the City an All-White Ghetto. And I went, what? Because I knew that we had had our time, but I didn't know that it was an organized plot. So he had gone through and interviewed people and found out exactly how the, how the system works, about how realtors would not show homes to people of color, about how every homeowners association was represented by a city council person, and that city council person uh, made sure to toe the line, and how the entire thing was enforced by the San Leandro Police Department. They used to call the, the San Leandro-Oakland border uh, the invisible wall at Durant Street, Durant East 14th Street, because people of color knew not to cross over uh, into San Leandro because there was a cop whose beat it was to sit there and to follow you um, until either there was a pretext to stop you or you were so intimidated, you turned around and you uh, you went back to uh, in, into Oakland, even like little kids on bikes. So I, at this point, I thought, oh my gosh, my entire project has is now changed. Um, it, it's not just the story of my evolution and what growing up in this hostile environment did to me, but the evolution of a city. Because San Leandro, by the time I started to write this thing, was one of the most diverse cities and remains one of the most diverse cities in the country. Um, so I remember I, I wrote to um, uh, to one of the the uh, the, the the, the critics of the Chronicle who had written a great review of a show at the March. And I said, I want to write a one-man show. How do I do it? He goes, well, there are two great directors in town. One is David Ford, and I forget who the other one was. And so he gave me David's email address, and I just wrote this email. With, I remember the title. It just said, help, in capitals, <laughs> with all, like 1 million exclamation points. And I said, I, I want to write a show. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? So he met with me, and I told him my idea, and he got it immediately. And then he came and he talked to you and you got it immediately before it was even written what it was I was trying to do and how all of that um, manifested itself into a, a bout of suicidal depression that I had when I was 35 years old, where I ended up in the garage of, 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 my, of my home with, with, in my sports car with the motor running. So, so that's where this whole thing, so I say, so I call it a happy accident because I had I not gotten that letter I don't know if I ever would have gotten you know to the place to explore what it is I explored had I not talked to Cindy Simmons I don't know if I ever would have gotten Don Magnifico's paper and I, I reached out to him and, and, uh, and I said can I use your research he said knock yourself out and I basically retraced his steps and that's how I researched that play. And your family went through so much and you integrated that into yeah. tell us how that all happened. Well, my mother was very, my mother was what black folks call sedidian. My mother um, liked to put on airs. She was born in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, but she spoke very, very proper English. And she would lie and tell people she was from Providence, Rhode Island, because Providence, Rhode Island sounded better than, uh, than, than Birmingham did. So, so she would tell people this, this story that, that, she came from, uh, that she came from Providence. And she would always, uh, she was always a kind of a social climber. In our house, if we said the word ain't, we mean as well as said the F word. I mean, that's how prim and proper my, my mother was about, about our grammar and about our speech and about how we behaved and how we carried ourselves. I'll tell you something interesting. I wondered for years how she got us into San Leandro because she got us into this 100-unit apartment complex 
again, that was that was all white us. And I wondered how in the world for years, how, because people would ask me like after the play or I would give talks. Yeah, so I wrote a book based on the show that has required reading in a lot of schools. People ask, how did she get in? I go, I have no idea. And I have since found out how she got in. The way she got us in San Leandro was her best friend and coworker was a white woman by the name of Sherry Moniz. And she got Sherry to come in and fill out the application in her name. And that's how she got in. And I found out that's how she got in. And I found out the first black residents here in, in town, how they bought their home was where this, they called it a shadow buyer was somebody white would come in and be shown the property and then purchase the property and then deed it over to the African-American family because otherwise they wouldn't even show it to you. But um, the, the, you know, what, it, what it does to you and, and what, it, what it did to me as a child um, still, is still in, inside of me today. You know, I, I deal with and battle with depression, which is why I want to do the, the, the waiting period piece today because so many people are dealing with depression. They say that we're dealing from crisis fatigue is what it is that they're calling And And in, I mean, that's amazing. That's the first time after all these years. Yeah. What year did you premiere it? Not a Genuine Black Man? Uh, 19, 19. No, it was 2004 it opened. It was 2003 that we started to work on it. We opened it in 2004 and I ran it until 2012. Um, uh, because Obama was president, so racism was over, remember? We were in a post-racial society, racism was over. <laughs> and I, um, I I stopped doing that, started doing a waiting, and I've since brought Genuine back, and I brought it back to the marsh because of the times that we find ourselves in that are just getting darker and darker and darker, it, it seems, as, uh, as, uh, as the day goes on. So in Not a Genuine Black Man, you talk some about your childhood and something about a baseball bat. Oh, yeah, there's a scene, you know, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, I had planned on doing, I was going to do a piece from the waiting period. Why don't I do, I do a little piece from, uh, from, from January. I'll, I'll, do a, I'll, I'll do a little piece, a little piece from January instead, since we talked so much about January. So uh, do, will we do something later on waiting period? Just go ahead. Do genuine. Do it, Brian. We'll do, we'll do a little piece of genuine if you want. I'll do a little piece of, I'll do a little piece of waiting period afterwards. Yes. Okay. Since you mentioned it, i got to figure out where the heck it is I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm sitting here in my family room, by the way. Welcome to my house. Welcome to my family room. Let me move my stool out of the way. Okay. Oh, by the way, I want to apologize for the headwear. The headwear. I have not had a, a haircut or a hair color in 13 weeks now, and I, I look like Frederick Douglass. I've got a big gray afro, and I don't want to inflict that on anybody. So that's why that's why I got my beard here. I'm waking by a beam of sunlight on my face. It's so warm. It feels like it's being focused to a magnifying glass. The smell of freshly cut grass perfumes the air. Saturday, my first Saturday in San Leandro. We've been here almost a week and all I've done is mope. I gotta be the new kid again. We move a lot and I'm always the new kid, I hate it. My mom puts her head in the bedroom door. Oh good honey, you're up. You know what, we just about unpack, so why don't you go out and explore? Meet some of the kids around here, introduce yourself. 
English pack nearby. Well, I climbed out of bed, brushed my teeth, grabbed my Latin baseball, and headed for the door. It'll be okay, honey. Remember, you're the man of the house now. Oh, maybe it will be okay. I mean, daddy's not here, so maybe it will be all right. It's clean, small houses, neat lawns. The elementary school's next door, that's good. Yeah, this is okay. There's a screech of tires. An old blue convertible pulls up next to me. It's got six teenagers piled in, three boys, three girls. They look like they're coming from a school thing. The boys all have on letterman jackets that say rebels. I don't think this is a good son. But I'm Aiden. I'm friendly. Hi. Pimply face kid in the passenger seat speaks up. <coughs> Oakland's that way. His friends laugh. Can you tell me how to get to the park? <coughs> well, four, they don't allow no niggers in that park. His friends laughed again. They don't allow no is a double negative, which cancels itself out. So that would mean they do allow niggas in that part. I thought that was damn quick, baby, if I do say so myself. His friends laughed. He just been taught by a kid. A black kid. They don't allow no niggas on the street either. Okay, I didn't really ever come back for that one. Or for what came next. Let's kick his ass! I didn't hear all that. Okay, I took off running between the words kick and hits. I dart across the street because I hear the engine gun and the tires squeal. I cut across one of the neat manicured lawns. I make a quick right turn and had I see it. A police car. Thank God I'm saved. As I approach a tall blonde cop inside, he's wearing those mirrored sunglasses that were also cop chic in the 70s. As I went towards him, he puts his hand on his gun. All right, what do I do? Take it My cop's pounding mine a minute, I can barely speak. Those kids are chasing me. Don't give me up. He, uh, Pauses for a minute. I think he's going to ask me for a description or which way to be when. You guys know where this is going, right? White people. Mm -hmm. White people. You mean that the policeman is going to help the little Negro boy? I'm kidding. You're all hip to this. That's why you're watching it. But the interesting thing to me is I know that every single one of you watching me right now, you've all heard these stories by now a hundred times. By now, you've heard them a thousand times. But no matter how many times you hear that story, no matter how many times you hear these stories, you can't get it if you ever walked in those shoes. You just can't. I like to equate it to Vietnam. Because ever since I was a kid, I've heard these guys go, yeah, I know about Vietnam. Oh, really? Where'd you serve? <coughs> I saw a documentary on the history channel. What I love are those white guys who try to empathize with yeah, man, I know exactly what you go through, man. I got long hair and a cop tassel, me too. Well, don't cut your fucking hair then. Come on. If you are a black male in society, these stories all have the same basic elements. You ate 18, 28, 38, walking, riding a bike, driving a car, or running away from angry kids who want to kill you. The first question is always the same. Do you have any identification? I'm eight. 
All right. Where'd you get the bat? And Mo. I got it at Sears. I used my birthday money. My sister went in a cup. You got a receipt? What are you, my accountants? All right, where do you live? In Kendon Village. Which? Kendon Village. It's more than one. The Queen of Parma's right here. Somewhere. And now maybe you better show me. He dashes toward the police car and I reach for the passenger side door. Just a minute. He takes my bat and ball, puts them on the hood of the squad car, and then I'm officially baptized as a black male in the society. And he has me raise my arms. And he pats me down. I'm eight years old. Thank you. I will leave it there, I think. Oh, Brian. Oh, Brian. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And you still live in San Leandro. And I know some things have been happening there. You want to uh, tell us what happened in San Leandro? Yeah, it's been a rough. Let me grab my stool. It's been a rough couple of days here in San Leandro. Um, as I mentioned before, we are um, today one of the most diverse, as of the 2010 census, one of the most diverse cities in the country in terms of demographic breakdown. So it was really a surprise um, how we were rioting and looted on Sunday night. I mean, there were swarms of people that came from other places, uh, apparently went out over the internet, that they had over, uh, over Facebook, they had places that they had targeted, and they came in and they practically destroyed our downtown. They destroyed Bayfair Mall, the Marina Square outlet stores, they looted and destroyed the AT&T store, uh, a, a GameStop. At Auto Row, somehow they stole 100 brand new cars. And again, these, yeah, 100 brand new cars. So how they expected to get away with this, or what they're going to do with them, I, ha I haven't a clue. But there was a peaceful protest. And then after the peaceful protest, hundreds of people came who showed up from other places who trashed the city. And what broke my heart was seeing small businesses that I had gone to as a child, you know, uh, where it was, you know, mom and pop places that had the window smashed. A friend of mine is a jeweler, uh, third generation uh, jeweler. His grandfather started the, started the store and nicest guy on the planet. And fortunately, he doesn't keep any of his expensive stuff out. So they broke into the jewelry store and there's nothing to steal. So I guess they were angry, there's nothing to steal. So they completely destroyed and trashed the place. You know, so it's just, it was, it was just heartbreaking. I, I was able to go and, uh, and take a tour of, of the damage with, uh, with our city councilwoman uh, for, uh, for our district one here on, on Monday. And it, uh, it, it brought me to tears. It really did bring me to tears because you know, we, we, we have to make our voices heard about police brutality. We have to make our voices heard about the, the damage that is done to black bodies in this country and the, the lack of value that's given to black bodies in this country. But violence just doesn't solve anything. But that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, you have to look at how much coverage and how much attention would this have received 
had it, had it not been a violent protest. So to weigh one against the other, it's it's a difficult question. But I never want to see any any violence or any destruction of property. And I've always believed the first man to raise a fist is a man who's run out of ideas. But you know there have been peaceful protests for we've been peaceful protests for 150 years, and we're still in the same place. But there have also been riots. You know things were supposed to change after Rodney King, and what changed after Rodney King? Things were supposed to change after the Watts riot in 1965. What changed after the Watts riot? You know, and and I, I fear that after all of this is over and all the destruction and all of the people who were hurt and and reputations that were tarnished and, and destroyed, some that deserved to be, others that didn't, that we're gonna end up in the same place. It's just it's just disheartening. I I, I think do you have any hope that this is different, that 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 people, the white people are going to see that it's such an issue that they may have been able to kind of put under the rug before, but that it's not possible as possible now. Is there any hope, Brian? Give me, give us some hope. Here's, here's what the hope is. What the hope comes for me comes from is technology. And what, what white people are seeing now, black people have seen for decades. Black people have seen for centuries in terms of our treatment. And when we would talk about it, um, a lot of the time we would not be believed. Um, what finally got a civil rights act uh, and, and got rid of segregation in 1964 was the sight of Bull Connor turning fire hoses and dogs on children who were peacefully marching with Dr. King. And it was, it was seeing that that so upset white people that they may have heard these stories, but it's one thing to hear it and something else to see it. Now with technology, it's because of this cell phone video. Had there not been video of this, we never would have heard about this. Had there not been video of, 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 uh, of what happened in, 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 uh, in Minneapolis, we, we never would have heard about this. There would have been some police report about how he resisted and I feared for my life and the life of the other, of the other officers, and, and that would have been it. So what gives me hope is the fact that seeing, some people must see in order to believe. And the more of this people see, the more of, 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 of this it's going to upset people so that people finally stand up and say, enough. And a lot of that's what's happening now. So I look at these crowds that are marching, like in New York and other places, there are people who are of, of all colors and all ages and all races and creeds who are marching together and marching saying, this can't go on. So that's the part that gives me hope. That's the part that gives me hope. I'm glad. I think we are all hopeful. We all, we all need <laughs> hope. What a time. We need hope. And that all the tips, uh, you know, the marshes has a tip jar and we have memberships. And tonight, uh, the marshes tip jar, anyone who gives a tip to the tip jar, you will actually be linked to the Oakland's uh, anti-terror police project. So that's uh, awesome. what your donations will go to. Well, because of the hope, let's maybe we can like switch now. You've done a number of shows and switching now to the waiting period, which we premiered, I think in 2014. 2012, actually. 2012. 2012. Whoops. 2012. Whoops. What's the waiting period? <laughs> Well, that was after, yeah, I, I wasn't done doing January yet. Yeah, so <laughs> 2012. 2012, we did the waiting period. 
which is uh, just a, you know, a show about the 10 days you have to wait between purchasing a gun and being able to pick it up. Yeah, was, this is about, about, about a really bad suicidal bout of depression I had back in 2008 is, uh, is what that's about. When over the course of, of, uh, of a couple month period, my grandmother, you know, who along with my mother raised me, had a stroke and died suddenly. I had a marriage breakup. I got in a terrible car accident. I had spinal cord surgery that almost left me quadriplegic. This all happened at once. And I ended up in this really bad, bad, bad bout of depression. And, and it was a suicidal bout. And so what made me decide to turn that show, uh, to create that show and to actually tell that story. So I thought about, well, would it help people if I actually told the story and talked about well, what goes on inside the mind of a depressed person? Was a, uh, a friend of mine, um, a dear friend of mine, had a, a teenage nephew, 15 years old, uh, who suffered from mental illness, who laid down on the railroad tracks up in Oakley in, in front of a moving train. And when that happened, I said, okay, I have to tell this story because maybe if I tell the story, some other 15-year-old kid will hear the story and go to somebody and say, hey, I need, I need some help. And, the, and the, the trick that David and I, this was the hardest show that David and I had, had to do out of all the shows that we've done, because the, the, the idea was, is we wanted to do a show about depression that wasn't a depressing show. And, and as you've, you've seen it a hundred times, you know that, that it isn't, and a show that also ends with hope, but also with the message of tell somebody. If you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, and I hear, I'm getting emails from people daily right now. Strangers, I'm getting emails from, and please feel free to email me, Mr. Copey at, at briancopeland.com, and I answer every single one that I get. People email are emailing me now that they just feel the sadness, and they feel like I had a woman email me that she felt like she had an anvil on her chest because of all of the stuff that's going on right now. And and uh, there are people who suffer from depression who have suffered from it for years, and now there are people who are suffering from it for the first time because of the times that we're living in right now. Yeah, and we did that. And I know one of the most amazing thing besides the brilliance of the show was that we got letters, you got letters, we got letters that you are saving lives. People yeah, there, there are people who are walking around today because we have this project that you and I put together uh, where we do the show uh, a couple of Sundays a month free to the public and it's an intervention. And um, there are several people who I've heard from who are here because of that show. And the one story that always sticks out to me is this woman wrote me that she had decided she was going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. And she was sitting in a cafe on a Sunday um, and she was gonna have her coffee and then her plan was to drive to the bridge. And at the table she's sitting at, the pink section of the Chronicles open and there's a picture of me and a blurb about the show and that it's free, what the show is about and that it's free. So she kind of thinks, hmm. So she flips a coin and heads, she'll go and see the show, tails, she'll drive to the bridge. So she flips the coin, it comes up heads. She comes to the show, she cries, she gets the message to tell someone and she immediately goes from the marsh to her sister's house and tells her sister, I'm and I'm thinking about hurting myself and she's here today and she's here today just makes you so, want 
how teary and just makes me tear up. And it's been such a great collaboration. How many years now have we been doing this for free? We've been doing this for free. We started when Robin died. We started doing it for free when Robin Williams died um, because I thought that was, uh, that was a moment people were talking about depression and about suicide. And I thought that it was an opportunity to expand the conversation that we need to have and to destigmatize that disease as, as, as best we can. And it, it's, it's working some, you know, it, it, people are becoming more aware of, of mental illness in this country, I think, than they ever have before. Um, and are looking at it as not something to be ashamed of, but something that um, needs to be understood and people who suffer from it need to receive compassion as opposed to being looked at as a character flaw of some kind. It's all the continuum, it just luck of the draw and what happens to us in the life where we end up on that continuum, isn't it, Brian? It sure is, it's just funny. It's funny how the world works. So Brian, would you like to do a little section now from waiting period? Sure, sure, I'll do a few minutes of the waiting period. I'll do the beginning of the waiting period, how's that? Let me move my stool out of the way again. Well, here we are. Big, big steel door with iron bars. God, I hope nobody sees me going in here. That's all I need to get around. You never guessed why I shot Brian Copeland. What was he doing going in there? You know, we've all entered places we want to be seen going into the Places that make you question the very core of who you are, like uh, unemployment office, or strip club, Walmart, Justin Bieber concert. Now, I'm only here because that's my daughter's birthday. What do you mean, where is she? The pharmacy's the worst place, right? You don't want the world to know that your kid is the one in school with the headlights. She's sneaking a license and out the store. You know, black people can't get headlights. It's true. Apparently, the lights don't want to live in those neighborhoods. We're always so concerned about people judging us, you know? I once bought a $150 shirt because I needed condoms. Oh, so gift shop at the Ritz Carlton Hotel. Yeah, let me take that shirt and some times and that uh, snowboat with the Golden Gate Bridge. Because it looks so realistic. But eventually, there comes a time when you have to say, fuck what people think. But not today. Well, because it's clear. I push the bell and the buzzer rings. I open the steel door, walk in, and it slams behind me. Yeah, so much for being discreet. Wow, this is not what I expected at all. It's so tiny, so, so cluttered. This is not what I thought that a gun shop was going to look like. Over on this wall are all these pictures of guys posing proudly with the carcasses of deer that they just blasted in the oblivion because no deer are so threatening. Over on this wall is a big poster of Osama bin Laden with the circles of a target over his face. Like anybody coming in here would have been able to tag the guy who took 48 Navy SEALs to get. Over here 
we have the obligatory Confederate flag thumbtacked to the wall in order to show that flag all the respect that it deserves. You know, I've never understood people who have an affinity for the Confederacy. You know, they'll say to you, hey, that's part of our heritage. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know the word heritage and treason were interchangeable. Personally, I think anybody who loves the Confederacy should only be paid in Confederate money. Back here are all these posters of bikini-clad days, packing heat, trying very hard to look lethal and sexy both at the same time. Man, I don't know if you can pull that off, man. I've been married twice. They're either lethal or sexy, never both. All ahead is a big glass cabinet. Behind the cabinet is a guy who looks like he drives his tractor in his job at the feed store. He's got on a John Deere hat and a pendulum shirt, and he's smoking. I thought gunpowder was supposed to be flammable. Over here's the older guy, and I can tell this is like this barbershop where he comes to hang out. You know, he's got on a flat shirt, and it's unbuttoned just enough so you can see the gold nugget necklace resting in a gray bird's nest of chest hair he's got going on here. Doesn't that sexy lady, huh? huh? Nothing like a man who knows how to scissor at you see that nugget jewelry, right? You know what I'm talking about that gold nugget jewelry? You know what I call it? Lazy-ass jewelry. Because that's exactly what it is. It is lazy-ass jewelry. It's like you're in the gold mine and you have to pick. Man, look what I found. I can melt this down and I can make that nugget just put it on the chain. So I walk up to the tractor guy behind the glass cabinet. He takes one look at me and says, Dude! Where the hell did that come from? Dude, can I like, you know, can I like, you know, like help you, dude? Uh, yeah, I'd like to look at your revolvers, please. Now, let me fast that to you right now. I know nothing about guns, nothing. But I do know revolver because the Beatles are out. I also know that it is a firearm, so I use the term so I don't sound like a complete and total imbecile. Um, revolvers, I'd like to look at your revolvers, please. Oh, dude, you should have been there earlier. I just sold my last 38 this morning. Oh. Well, do you have anything smaller, like a 37? The nugget man speaks up. What does that mean? They need the weapon for. I love how gun guys always refer to the firearms as weapons, but they're talking about spears and swords. So. Well, there have been some, uh, some, some robberies in my neighborhood, and I want to. Uh, protect my family, and uh, exercise my Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Like they say on Fox News. I certainly understand that. The super tractor guy reaches inside the glass cabinet, pulls out a small black pistol, and hands it to me. It's a tiny. Looks like a toy. I'm wondering where the caps come out. You know, I never had a gun in my hand before, but I gotta tell you that it feels cool. It's really cool. It's like I've got a little black seal penis extender. That's exactly what it is. It is a metal penis extender. So not everybody can afford a Corvette. That's a 32 brand of Tomcat. That looks poor Taylor. Hmm. I have no idea what they're talking about. Aluminum alloy frame, stainless steel slide barrel, pulls seven rounds to a clip. How much? 
okay, dude, you know, that one's used, you know, so I can, like, you know, you know I can do a lot. How about, like, you know, like, 439? Okay, I, I can do that. What's the procedure? Okay, you know, like, first, we got to put this, like, you know, a background check, make sure that, you know, like, a terrorist or something. A terrorist? What is well done? Like, what am I going to hijack a model airplane? Okay, background check, is that it? Well, then there's the safety test, you know, it's like 30 questions. You're allowed in a seven and still pass. There's a test, really? I know guys who admire the IQs of racist monkeys who own gun collections. Something tells me that we're not talking about the SAT here. All right, safety test, is that it? Well, then there's the 10 day waiting period. 10, 10 days. <laughs> That's the law. Goddamn People's Republic of California. 10 days. Same time that TV spot watchers tell you they can teach how to speak a new language. 10 days. Same time as credit card payment grace periods and inaccurate long-range weather forecasts. 10 days. 10 lousy days. Phew! I'll include your clip. Seven rounds. Seven votes. You know, if I can't figure this thing out in the next 10 days, I'm only going to need one. Thank you, Brian. I have to say in the 30 years, almost 31 years of the Marsh's history, doing this show and doing it for free now for all the years is one of my most proudest, proudest things that we've done. So oh. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We should let people know too, there's a GoFundMe that we do for that. If you want to support doing the, the uh, the waiting period for free on Sundays. Just uh, just Google the Mars GoFundMe and it'll come up. It'll come up. And make sure you put money in the tip jar today as well. I see I see questions popping up. Do we have questions? Uh, I'm not sure they're all questions. They're thanking people are thanking you for doing this. Oh, that's sweet. There's a lot of thank yous. If there are some questions, uh, please do put that up. Um, we'll go to questions in a couple of minutes, but I do think before we completely open this up, okay. as long as people are opening, we can continue to talk till 8.30 or so. Um, okay. you, do oh, have, cool. you do have a new show, right? You have a new show that was supposed to uh, be playing right now <laughs> in the March. And it was supposed to open on the 4th of April called Grandma and Me. And, um, it's it's a really special show. We've we've done some readings and some stage readings at the Marsh, and audiences have, have, have loved it and have cried at the end. And it's just you know David Ford and I are just so gratified and excited by the response so far. 
And uh, what Grandma and Me is about is about when my mother died when I was 14 and she left five kids. Uh, I was the oldest at 14. My sister Heather was the youngest at 11 months when my mom passed away. And Grandma at 57 took all five of us on all by herself. And I didn't realize the magnitude of that till we were clearing out her things a couple of years ago when I came across the custody thing. And I realized, my gosh, she was 57, taking on five kids, including you know, 14 year old teenager, all the way down, we were two years apart until we got to the baby. Then flash forward to 2001 and I was going through a divorce and I ended up with my three, first grade, fifth grade and seventh grade. And I had my three all by myself. And so what the story does is what Nigerian Black Man does and that it goes back and forth between the two periods and how the past informs the present and the lessons that I learned about how to deal with various situations from grandma and how I applied them to, uh, to my own childhood. Yeah, well, looking forward to it opening. Yeah, well, whenever Gavin Newsom says we can do it, we'll do it. <laughs> we'll be back in that theater and you'll be doing Grandma and Me and so looking forward to that. Um, right now, let's, let's open it up to questions. We have a question from Valerie. Uh, what hi, is- hmm? You said, hi, Valerie. <laughs> hi, Valerie. What? So here it is. Let's see, now I've lost it. Uh, 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 uh. Oh my goodness, what happened to it? There's so many things coming in. Brian, do you see it? I mean, Brian Williamson. I do. Uh, Valerie's question is, what is the relationship between your survival and the waiting period? And, and then she clarifies it by saying to both the relationship between the 10 day waiting period and your art, the waiting period and your survival. Um, well, I don't wanna say what pulls me out of it because that that gives away too much the plot of the story and ends the story. I, I can't tell you that obviously I did come out of it because I, I am here um, writing the story you know, people always ask me, like, would that play the same as, like, with Genuine? It was it cathartic to write it? Was it cathartic to write it? And it's, it's never really been catharsis for me to write these things because they've got to be in the rearview mirror. I've got to be past it, it, it far enough in order to be able to write about it. So I have to have already have dealt with whatever was messy and, and have things in order in order for me to be able to tell the story. If I'm at a point where it's catharsis, then that means that there are still unresolved issues with it. So um, I don't know if that answers Valerie's question, but I, I, I hope so. So it's not in the writing of it. What, what about the performing of it and the performing of your shows? Is that cathartic? What, what is it for you that, you know, inspires you to keep performing these shows? Well, I can tell you um, in, in terms of performance and catharsis, um, grandma passed away during the, the original run of Not Genuine Black Man. She was able to see it. She saw it, and I was so happy. She, she saw it in San Francisco, she saw it in LA, and she saw it in New York. You were there for all three of those, as a matter of fact. So remember they gave her a standing ovation? You know, this little girl from Birmingham, they, they stood up and gave her a standing ovation in all three places. And about two years into the run of that show, she, she had a stroke suddenly and passed away. And um, performing that show, I thought about canceling performances and my sister said, no, she'll kick your butt if you do that. You know, 
You, you go on and you get your butt out there and you do, you go out there and do your work. And performing that show and performing her on the stage, at that time, that was cathartic. That was cathartic and that did help because I had just lost her. But there's, there is something still cathartic, I will say, about performing that show because I do miss my mother and my grandmother very much. And um, I get to spend two hours with her. Every time I do this show, I get to spend two hours with her again. I get to be a little boy and spend time with, you know, with two of the most important people in the history of my life. So I would call that catharsis. I remember the part in Genuine where your grandma is boiling some water. <laughs> yes. This angry white mom shows up at our front door and grandma has boiling water and she dumped hot water on these people. She did that more than once, by the way. I talked about it once on the show, but she actually did the hot water routine more than once. So did she actually throw the, did she throw yeah. it? The way, it, way our apartment was, was it was, um, uh, yeah, the front row of the apartment, and then next to it was a patio that had a gate. And and the patio was attached to a sliding glass door that went to the kitchen. So she would be, you know, have a pot of water on, boiling it for, you know, maybe this one particular time she was cooking greens, or she might have been boiling it to, it's to, to another time to boil corn or eggs or whatever. And, and somebody came with some nonsense, and she <laughs> came with the pot and threw the pot over the threw the water from the pot over the fence, you know? But she did that, she did that two or three times. I'm surprised, I'm surprised that she didn't end up in jail for that. <laughs> and I know that another one of the favorite lines in uh, Not Genuine Black Man With Your Grandma is like, how could you have been born in, in uh, Portland, Maine when I never been oh, to in, Portland, in, Maine? Yeah, in Rhode Island. Uh, yeah. Rhode Island, <laughs> sorry. You know, I never been to a dog on Rhode Island. How the hell was you born there? <laughs> so, what has your life been like? You know, we've got two major things right now. What's your life like during the quarantine, right? Um, and I'm still a little stir crazy. I'm a lot stir crazy. It's it's um it's me and uh, and my my 25 year old, my son uh, my son Casey, who's a musician. And it's, I will tell you the cool, two really cool things about it. I'll tell you two cool things about it. Um, one is, is that we're spending more time together than we've spent in, in years. We're really just quality time, just the two of us. You're the youngest of the three. And the other part is, is, is that there's a lot of creativity. What I would do during the day is I um, have a, a home office and I go to my home office and I write. I'm working on a book. I'm working on a new play. And I, I've got an article uh, that I'm working on along with some other things. And he is working on a new album. So during the day, we're in, he's, he has his studio set up in his room. And he's in his room working. I'm in my office working. And then we come out at dinner. We have one breakfast together. We'll go work all day. Then we'll come out at dinner and have dinner together. And then we'll sit and watch Rachel Maddow and get really upset <laughs> about what stupid thing Trump has said or done today. And then he shows me a film I've never seen, and I show him a movie that I that he's never seen. And so that's been it's it's been kind of like a writing retreat. That's been the good part of it. The difficult part of it is just the uncertainty, the not knowing. I mean, performing my my entire life revolves around producing shows and performing shows, um, and and writing. Obviously, writing is a major is a, is a major part of it. I'm writing and producing what it is that it, that it is that I write. But to not be able to perform, especially not be able to perform for so long, for so long, 
is it's it's really hard. It's really, really difficult. This what I just did right here in my family room is fun. This was really fun. Thank you for this. Thank you. Okay, we have a question from Nina. I think you're a Moreau High School grad like my son. If so, how did that experience impact your life as a young black adolescent in a high school with so few black students, 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 students? Um, I went to Moreau Catholic High School. I was class of 1982. Um, I love Moreau. Moreau is, you, you cut me, I bleed green and gold. I, I love Moreau. I love my experience at Moreau, so much so that all three of my sons, all three of my children, my, my two sons and my daughter, uh, went to Moreau. There were parts that were uh, of it that were difficult being the only, yeah, I was the only African-American student in the class of, graduating class of 300. I was the only African-American student. And there were things that were hard. It was difficult for me to date because there were fathers who were racists. Uh, and it was always fathers. And my mothers were just Edith Bunker and along with whatever, whatever daddy says. Um, I couldn't get a decent part in a play ever. You know, I loved theater and was in theater all four years there, but I couldn't get a decent part in a play because if the character had a girlfriend or a love interest, they wouldn't do it because it would be interracial. If, if the character had a brother or a mother or a father or any other blood relative, they couldn't do it because, well, that would be silly. That just wouldn't work because non-traditional casting wasn't a thing at the time. So those things were hard. But my experience overall was was great. And I I, 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 I still go back to Moreau. And uh, I performed genuine at Moreau. Actually, uh, uh, quite a few times I've gone back there and done genuine for, for fundraisers or for various for various things. Um, and I and if you have a an eighth grader or a seventh grader and you're looking at a high school and you're in the East Bay, I can't recommend Moreau High School more Moreau uh, Catholic High School more highly. All right, we have another question from Amy Zins. Hi, Amy. I have a friend whose eleven year old son has talked about suicide. Have you had any kids in your audience? What are your thoughts about bringing a kid this young who is really already at risk to your show? And the kid is seeing a psychologist. Um, people have brought kids to the show before. Um, adolescent, it's adolescents where, where it, it, it's who I've seen, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, I would say to talk to the psychologist, here's, here's what I would say. You come and see it first, then talk to the psychologist and ask the psychologist. Okay, because I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. I don't know your son. I don't know your son's specific situation. I don't want to say something that's going to be a trigger and it, that it will inadvertently be a trigger uh, to make a situation worse. So you come and see it first, see what you think, and then after you see the show, if you still want to bring your son, then talk to the psychologist to say, I saw the show and here's what it's about. And, and I wrote a book version of it too. And the book, the book is available on Amazon. That, that tells the story. If you wanted to take a look at the book and give him the book to look at, if the psychologist says it's okay. But do, but do what, the, what the mental health professional tells you to do in that, in that instance. Yeah, well, that seems like excellent, Brian, excellent. <laughs> so, Brian, you've done a lot of things with Not a Genuine Black Man. I mean, I don't think any performer has had, you know, this this sh a show that has done as much as you have with the show. Can you talk a little bit about that? No. <laughs> yeah, I can do a couple of things. And come on. 
Well, um, it, we started it at the Marshall Course, where it ran for a couple of years, and then it went to Los Angeles, where it ran for a while, and then it ran on Broadway. Uh, then I was asked to, to write a book that was based on the play, and um, out of all the stuff, the, the, the coolest thing for me is the fact that the book, the two coolest things for me are one is that the book is required reading. There are a lot of colleges in high schools. I get emails from uh, from professors who will send me midterm exam copies of midterm exams from their students, and it's stuff out of my book and questions about my life that they've got to study and answer for questions. That's just surreal. Um, that's that's one of the coolest things. The other cool thing is there have been three young men that I'm aware of around the country who have taken monologues that they've created from the book and done them in speech contests and won. Uh, one kid uh, won for the, the speech contest for high school for the state of for the uh, the state of Illinois. A kid from Chicago. Somebody else won regionals in Houston. And there was another young man from I want to say from from Alabama who um, who created a monologue. Just you know, I guess took bits and pieces from the book and, and you know, kind of stitched them together into a fifteen minute piece and uh, and performed them. And, and ended up winning. So, so those things are, are uh, they're surreal and gratifying at the same time. And, and I know also, and I don't know if you're still doing it, you, you got it to be credit for th therapists or something? Yeah, I'm, I, oh, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, that we're not doing, we're thinking about doing it again. Yeah, um, and that is uh, a uh, psychologist friend of mine in Southern California. We uh, got certified so that it was continuing ed credits for mental health professionals. If you're a mental health professional, you have a certain number of credits that you have to, uh, continuing ed credits that you have to do every year in order to keep your license. And so we got certified. We're accounted for three uh, credits for psychologists and psychiatrists to come and see it. So they would come and see it. And then um, we would uh, we would do a talk back um, afterwards and answer questions. So it would be a three hour Saturday afternoon. And we're thinking about doing that again. And I remember the reason they wanted when the I remember way back when uh, the, the people who attended your workshop were so thankful for it because you gave a perspective that they really didn't. They were kind of making it up where you were for real. Can you do you remember that that kind of conversation yeah. happening? Yeah, there were a lot of those kinds of conversations because there's so many different aspects and so there's so many constituencies. You talk about a lot of things being done with genuine. It has so many different constituencies. There's the California history constituency. You know, there were a lot of schools. Remember during the original run, all the colleges were assigning it. Uh, and they were signing it in California history. They were signing it for drama. They were signing it for English. Um, the colleges were signing it for child development. Uh, there is domestic violence in the show. So it's got that constituency. People who deal with domestic violence and survivors of domestic violence. Uh, probably the largest constituency of that show was fair housing because it is a fair housing show. It's a show. Uh, and even though I didn't intend for it to be, it really is a show that's, uh, that, that's fair housing because it talks about housing discrimination, how insidious it is, and how it worked in the 70s, and how it, it's, it's still, there's some places where it's it's still working today. It's still in, I shouldn't say working, it's still in practice, we should say today. All right, well, we are coming up to almost 8.30, and I was wondering if you had any last words or something you want to say to your very large audience of people who are listening to you on this Mars stream. 
Well, I would say, first of all, thank you very much for watching. Thanks for supporting the Marsh. Um, thanks for supporting the Marsh when the Marsh was open. And thanks for supporting the Marsh, especially now, because it's such a difficult time and it's such a hard time for theaters. You know, theaters, yeah, every ticket you buy helps keep the lights on. And it, it, it's so very vitally important at this time that the doors aren't open that we do something to be able to keep the lights on so we can continue to create this important work that within it is that we do. And, and we do try to create important work. So thanks for supporting uh, this March stream. If this is your first one, please come back to others. Um, there's something going on, uh, on, uh, on online from the Marsh six days a week. And there's a tip jar and I'm asking you to put some money in the tip jar so that once we're allowed to have an audience, all we gotta do is open the door and we can have an audience. Steph, thank you. Thank you for my career. I'm gonna say thank you for my <laughs> Thank you for keeping your support of the Mars there and constant over all these years. Thank you so much, Brian Copeland. Right. Thank you. So I love you dearly. Love you too. All right, well, this has been incredible, Brian. I hope you will all continue to come see Stephanie's Marsh Dream and all the Marsh Dreams. We're actually have things seven nights. One's usually a reboracast, so you're kind of right about that, Brian. And next week on my Marsh Dream, and she's here, we have Irma Herrera. I'm so grateful. We'll be hearing Irma next week and great about that. On Friday nights, I made, we, it's like, car, is this like something we can do during this devastating time? We still have bingo with Josh Kornbluth because of anyone, Josh Kornbluth probably <laughs> is the most politically politicized bingo host in the universe as well as the funniest. And we will be donating to the um, Oakland uh, Anti-Terror Police Force too if you come and you wanna have some community in this dire time. And once again, on Saturday night, we have Ron Jones and Wayne Harris live performing in the moment stories about voter registration and issues very relevant to today with a post performance uh, town hall. So let's all get together and Don Reed will be there as a guest as well as the performers. And that's it for tonight. Thank you all so much. Please stay healthy. Stay in good spirits. Let our hearts be open to change and let us have a better world for everyone. Thank you all so, so much. See you tomorrow and next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.